Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, what impact will the change of leadership in Washington DC have on US-NATO relations? President Biden is arriving in a world that has been, I think, irrevocably changed. Europe is going to have to do better at looking after its own defence. We speak to the UK's former ambassador to NATO, Sir Adam Thompson. How difficult was it to rid the Falklands of landmines nearly 40 years since the conflict there? We'll hear from one former soldier involved in the clear-up. A lot of the minefields were in quite remote locations, so pretty difficult to get to. Some of our teams were going to work by boat each morning and, and returning in the evening. And we look at the future for defence in space. We're looking at potential development of lasers that can blind optical satellites. Um, High-powered microwave frequencies that could uh, interfere with electronics within satellites. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. The US President-elect Joe Biden says the transition process is well underway. That is despite Donald Trump's refusal to concede last week's election or to give the Biden team any access to official resources like intelligence briefings. Mr Biden has spoken to several world leaders, including Boris Johnson, and signalled that foreign policy will be very different in future. From Great Britain to, to France to Germany to Canada, etc., and Ireland, I feel confident that we're going to be able to uh, put America back in uh, the, the place of respect that it had before. Meanwhile, President Trump has sacked the U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper, replacing him with the current head of counterterrorism, Christopher Miller. Well, Sir Adam Thompson was the U.K. ambassador to NATO up to 2016, and before that, ambassador to the United Nations. He is now director of the European Leadership Network, which describes itself as a network of leaders across the continent dedicated to a safer Europe. I asked him what changes does he think there will be in America's relationship with NATO. There's a tremendous amount of continuity in US policy. I mean, even under President Trump, the United States was putting more assets into Europe rather than actually taking them out, despite all the sound and fury. President Biden himself will want, in some senses, I think, to uh, try and set the clock back uh, as much as he can to the status quo ante, seeking strenuously to reassure European allies about the United States' commitment to their collective defence uh, and security, uh, that the United States will be a good ally. But at the same time, President Biden is arriving in a world that has been, I think, irrevocably changed by the four years of President Trump. Europe as a whole, uh, I think, uh, is really clear now that it's not possible to do long-term deals with the United States. Europe is going to have to do better at looking after its own defence. Does that perhaps lead to increasing development of military structures um, and military planning within the EU? It may do, but I think um, what uh, we're also quite likely to see is a, a more visible European pillar inside uh, NATO itself. 
if President Biden uh, is anything like uh, the Obama administration, uh, his leadership of NATO uh, will be selective. He will be looking for Europeans to step up to the plate inside NATO and not just uh, in the European Union. Uh, that, if I may add, James, runs alongside a, a looming, uh, I think, probability of much sharper NATO-Russia confrontation uh, under President Biden, certainly sharper US-Russia. In terms of NATO, President Trump was not long ago talking about getting all American forces out of Afghanistan by Christmas. What path do you think Joe Biden should take on Afghan drawdown? He said he wants to uh, get the vast majority of troops home. I would guess uh, since uh, he himself and many of those who will advise him uh, are very heavily invested in Afghanistan and the uh, Obama surge, uh, that he'll be a bit readier to go the distance than President Trump was and that the Afghan government can count on rather more US and by extension more NATO support. What about President Trump's plan to take more than half of US troops out of Germany and a lot of them to go home, not stay in Europe, elsewhere in Europe? Do you think, uh, as some German ministers have expressed hopes, Joe Biden might reverse that? Uh, yes, I think there is a chance. But I go back to my earlier points that I am very confident that the Biden administration will be looking for Europeans, including Germany, to do much more, not just spend more, but actually to have greater military capability. Uh, ideally, for the Americans, they want to focus their attentions more on a rising China and not always have to look over their shoulder at what's going on in Europe. You mentioned burden sharing on defence spending. Now, President Trump is credited with actually delivering in getting people to increase spending. They might have made the promises under Biden and Obama, but they've actually been pushed into delivering under Trump. Uh, will that continue under Biden, particularly given the context of the, the, the huge economic damage of the pandemic? I believe it will. Um, uh, and I think uh, some of the credit goes to President Trump, but a great deal more to uh, President Putin and his uh, invasions of Crimea and uh, of eastern Ukraine, um, which was a, an appalling wake-up call. I was at NATO at the time, and uh, it has transformed NATO's uh, view of what's required from top to bottom. I regret to say I doubt the NATO-Russia relationship is going to get dramatically better, although I hope it will get safer. Uh, and as a consequence, I think Europeans are going to feel they have to continue with uh, rising defence investment, not just for the sake of the Americans, but for their own collective defence. How will UK defence and security be affected by these changes in Washington? I think the UK uh, is going to find itself a little more uh, lonely than it would have been under President Trump, um, who, because he was pro-Brexit, was willing to go a little bit out of his way for the sake of the uh, British government. President Biden has made very clear that he's got some red lines on Brexit vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, uh, the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland. Uh, and I think he will look more naturally to Paris and Berlin on uh, foreign policy and 
defence matters on the whole. So uh, I think London have, has got its work cut out to uh, gain ground uh, and credit uh, in Washington. And it may mean that London needs to be a little closer to its European allies than it might otherwise have chosen to be. The former UK ambassador to NATO, Sir Adam Thompson. With me this week, the defence editor of The Times, Lucy Fisher, and as always, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Lucy, how is this change in Washington, D.C. being viewed in defence terms within government in London? Well, there are huge sighs of relief. Um, With Joe Biden comes uh, a return to someone who believes in multilateralism, uh, international norms and standards uh, and democratic values. Um, I, I, I think I take, slightly um, disagree with the pessimistic tone of um, of the former NATO ambassador. I, I think obviously there has been um, significant um, damage done to the UK-US defence relationship under President Trump. But I think a lot of that came down to the specific unpredictability of his behaviour, in particular um, his drawdown uh, of troops in the Middle East, which was announced without any sort of pitch rolling with British politicians or the British military beforehand. I do think that we have, with uh, a Joe Biden administration coming in, a return to the, the usual way of doing things. It will take time to rebuild that trust, but I think the military-to-military military relationship will become stronger. And I think that um, for NATO, there will be a sense that it will become strengthened again. You know, President Trump's ambivalence towards the Western partnership um, did do damage because a perception of solidarity and unity is um, really at the heart of the credibility of NATO's ability to deter threats. That said, um, where I would agree um, with your former guest is that there, there is this pivot to China in Washington, and that won't change um, with the changeover of administration. Christopher, of course, NATO and the next US administration have an important decision to take about troops in Afghanistan. What do you think is going to, to happen there? At the moment, the, the, the US has said it, it will get all troops out by April if conditions are met with the Taliban. Well, there you are. If conditions are met with the Taliban, at the moment there is no chance of meeting the conditions uh, with, with, with the Taliban. The Americans never believe the Taliban, and quite rightly they never believe the Taliban, because it means that they've never got their finger on who, who, who squeezed the trigger. Lucy, it is interesting that Adam Thompson said actually Joe Biden comes into a, a world that has been changed forever and that Europe does realise uh, and has a vision that it has to raise its own game in defence terms. Yes, that's right. And I think that's one way in, in which um, the, the Trump impact um, uh, on, on NATO and European defence um, has been positive. You know, he, he uh, really put uh, some force behind um, his sort of threats about, um, you know, countries failing to meet the 2% of GDP spending target minimum. Uh, and we have seen the number of um, countries uh, who, who meet that target rise under Trump's presidency. But I think it, it, it is the case um, that, uh, you know, Europe has had to, is having to rethink its its security, that if, if the US is pivoting towards China, you know, how can it manage the threat from Russia more in its own backyard? Whether that's simply just to take the pressure off the US to allow the US to be more active in the Indo-Pacific. We know that um, 
In June, of course, um, Jens Stoltenberg, the uh, Secretary General of the Alliance, launched this new this new panel of experts to uh, embark on a series of reflections um, about NATO's um, political dimensions. And I think that there is this sense that NATO certainly needs a strategic reboot. Lucy, Christopher, stay with us. Let us turn to space, which is becoming a much more important environment for national security. But what do we mean when we talk about the possible militarisation of space? I've been speaking to Alexandra Stickings, who is Research Fellow for Space Policy and Security within the military sciences team at RUSI. I think we need to separate space warfare from the role that space plays in warfare. And it's a really important distinction. Um, Space has been important for military operations for decades. Um, You can look back to even the late 50s, the US Army was was looking at um, potential satellites and and how to disrupt, you know, Soviet satellites. So this has been going on for a long time, Um, particularly with um, the advent of GPS um, in the US and the role that plays in, in navigation and precision guided munitions. And we have space playing a role as well in um, ISR and communications. And this has only increased as more actors have become involved in it. But what we have seen recently is more of an increase in counter space capabilities, so capabilities that can deny um, your access to your space assets. And that's what's bringing up conversations about space warfare. Is this specifically and only um really about the threat to satellites? Well, yes. I mean, you have capabilities that can affect satellites themselves. So whether that's kinetic anti-satellite missiles that we've seen tested over the last few years or some of these non-kinetic methods, uh, we're looking at potential development of lasers that can blind optical satellites, Um, high-powered microwave frequencies that could uh, interfere with electronics within satellites. And also now we're seeing satellites that can manoeuvre and approach other satellites and what damage they could potentially cause. It's this balance between temporary and permanent, isn't it? Destroying a satellite or simply taking it out of service in a reversible way. Absolutely. So there's a whole spectrum um, of, of these capabilities that we see. But of course, you can affect access to space without affecting the satellites themselves. And we see that all the time with GPS jamming and how you could potentially affect ground control stations through through physical or cyber attacks. So it's not just about the satellites. It's not just about, I guess, a shooting war in space, which is often what people think about with space warfare. But it is much more about the integration of these capabilities into all the other domains and the different ways that you can affect satellites and, and space con- satellite control systems. And therefore, what space power means is much more complicated. Which potentially hostile actors and rivals are NATO most concerned about? Um, I suppose NATO probably would be most concerned about Russia, um, particularly, you know, the the activities Russia's taking. If you look at the high north, for example, so a lot of that would be, you know, denial. We see that, or I said, I mentioned already with GPS jamming, but potentially interference with um, intelligence and surveillance satellites that, that are monitoring those particular areas. But of course, then with balance, you think about China, you think about potential, you know, more U.S. focus on China, what that means for NATO space capabilities that, you know, NATO doesn't have its own space capabilities. It relies on member states and and the U.S., uh, you know, disproportionately has more of those assets than other NATO member states. So, again, it's about that balance and and how different actors are affecting um, different states. 
I mean, you mentioned NATO doesn't have its own space capabilities. NATO also has a, a, a quite distinctly different attitude and policy to space than the US. Can you just briefly I- explain the, the, the fundamental difference there? Absolutely. So the US has been quite uh, direct that it considers space to be a warfighting domain. And we see that with uh, the way that they, they react to um you know, testing of capabilities by by China and Russia, uh, and also the development of their own capabilities and the way that they talk about space, uh, always the predator, never the prey, is is a phrase I've heard come out. Uh, NATO, on the other hand, has declared space as an operational domain. And and, and my my opinion of that difference is that it's recognizing the role that space is playing, um, as I mentioned, you know, whether that's through navigation or ISR communications, and about how better to integrate the space capabilities of NATO members into operations, how, how you're talking about interoperability and, and that effective use of space, rather than using space in a more direct warfighting capacity. And where does the UK sit on that line between operational and warfighting in space? At, at the moment, I think it is it is kind of on the fence about that because it does recognise, I suppose, its role within NATO, but also the very close relationship it has with the US, particularly through Five Eyes and, and, and some of those partnerships we've had. And also the reliance that, that the UK has, particularly on the US, um, to provide a lot of these space capabilities. You know, the UK um, ha- has very limited sovereign space capabilities. But I think now, you know, with the new director space role within the MOD with the potential um, UK space command, we will see more direction as, as to, I guess, which route the UK, you know, intends to go down. And it is really important balancing act there because, you know, you want to keep that relationship with the US, you want to provide value to that relationship with, with whatever capabilities that we develop. But at the same time, and we have the, the NATO um, relationship to think about and also the role that the UK is playing internationally in terms of the norms of behaviour in space and what it means to be a responsible actor. And the UK has really been at the forefront of that. So, you know, you don't want to be kind of called out for too much hypocrisy by saying we want to you know, promote responsible behaviour, but we're also going to develop offensive capabilities. Alexandra Stickings from the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Lucy Fisher, how does space fit into the integrated defence and security review, which is still uh, to an extent underway within government? Well, it's certainly um, figured prominently in in the thinking of defence chiefs. Um, We had Ben Wallace, the defence secretary, uh, warning in July um, that Russian and Chinese efforts to develop space weapons was a major concern. In September, at a specific briefing on the integrated review, um, RAF Air Chief Marshal Mike Wigston also uh, sort of spelt out clearly to reporters um, that space is no longer uh, an uncontested domain. So, uh, you know, so far the emphasis has been on, you know, the the UK having become the first formal partner to the US-led Operation Olympic Defender which is a multinational coalition to stop hostile states causing trouble in space. I think that there is really a sense that I pick up from, from contacts that this does need to be a multilateral effort. It, it, is, it is an incredibly expensive um, domain to sort of operate in just unilaterally. It, it seems to me that there's, there's a clear link between um, needing to ensure um, the defence of UK assets and the stepping up of um, the government's interest in kind of commercial 
footprint in space. We, we know the government has obviously bought this huge stake in OneWeb, the global communications satellite constellation company that could aim to provide uh, internet broadband services. Uh, we know that the UK government also wants to invest in spaceports for the UK to become uh, a site of satellite launches in future. So if it's going to invest in this kind of um, space and technology industry, it really needs to ensure um, that some of these um, weapons, whether those are ground launch kinetic weapons or the, the types of sort of hacking or, or, or laser weapons um, directed from space against satellites, it, it needs to ensure that those can be protected against. Christopher, as space becomes more part of defence operations and, and potentially uh, fighting, is there a possibility of international agreement on space arms control, on, on the norms of operating in space? I think one of the difficulties is, is, is getting, for example, 27, 28 members of NATO agreeing what should be in any arms control. For example, what about the question of, of resolution, of actually how you test whether the other side uh, has got everything in, has got everything in the, in, in the agreement. Um, if you go and talk to the three, three chiefs of staff at the moment, they will all say to you, we agree that one of the most important things is going to be arms control on space. Uh, there's no question of that, but who pays for it? The devil lurks in the new arms control agreement on this. It's never been a satisfactory way of doing things. Christopher, thank you for your thoughts on that. Lucy Fisher, thank you for your time today, but uh, Christopher... Stay with us. Now, whilst the Army's shooting competition at Bisley was cancelled this year due to COVID, one shooting contest, just as steeped in tradition, has gone ahead as planned. Every year, Gurkha recruits compete to reveal the top shot of their intake, or rather, who will get to sit in a very special chair. Hannah King was there to see this year's historic event unfold. It's a passion. And it has to come through your heart and mind. When it comes to shooting, the Gurkhas have a reputation to uphold. Last year at Bisley, of the top 100 shooters in the entire British Army, 75 of them were Gurkhas. Uh, it is the biggest, I would say, one of the biggest uh, event in Gurkha Company's calendar. This is Captain uh, Belgarung, officer in command of today's contest. We have got so many a talented instructors here who carries their personal experience from Bisley. And uh, this is our now duty uh, to pass on to our new generations uh, that our... Uh, strength and skills uh, so that they will take forward because our generation, our forefathers did the same to us. It's not a magic. The young men are nearing the end of their training in a bizarre year. Just three competitions now remain in drill, cross-country and shooting. The final part of today's contest sees the recruits compete against their own instructors. Then the overall top shot is paraded round the range on a chair decked in tinsel and scarves carried high above the heads of their senior officers. Here's Captain Bell again, followed by recruit training rifleman Puan Rai. If they beat us or if they perform to the standard that to our level, 
that is the satisfaction i would say i am feeling really grateful and thankful to all my uh, training team who guided us through through the long journey and for the 9 months uh, we were nothing but after our training we will make proud to the nation and we will fight for the nation Hannah King with Gurkha Company. Now, during the Falklands conflict, some 20,000 anti-personnel and anti-vehicle mines were laid, cutting off beaches and land in the islands. The local population have lived with barbed wire and warning signs for almost 40 years. Now, though, the Falklands have been declared mine-free after a UK-funded programme carried out by a team mainly from Zimbabwe. Earlier, I spoke to former Royal Engineer John Hare, who now works with Safe Lane Global, who has been working in mine clearance in the Falklands for the last six years. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the biggest challenges are the logistics ones and the environment. A lot of listeners will probably know, having been here, the environment, the weather can be very challenging. A lot of the minefields were in quite remote locations, so very difficult to get to. Some of our teams were going to work by boat each morning and, and returning in the evening. Uh, some of the locations were a six-hour journey away. So we had to remote teams out from Stanley and support them in, in those remote locations. So logistically, it was very challenging. It's an incredible achievement, but how can we be sure that all the mines have have, have been dealt with? Well, I, I believe in the... Uh, Every fenced-off area that we've been contracted to clear, we can be very confident that, that those mines have, uh, have gone. We've had Argentine records in most of the minefields, and what we've found in the minefields has been supported by those, those, those records. What we found in them was what was said to be in them. What is this going to mean? I mean, you're, you know, you're in the Falklands. What is it going to mean to the people living there, including the military communities? Well, I think it's going to have a great impact on tourism. This beach that's being opened on uh, on Saturday is, you know, it's a pristine, beautiful beach. Everyone wants to go on York Bay Beach. And uh, that has been, <laughs> I think for the Falkland Islands, that's been the prize at the end of the tunnel. For you personally, as someone who served in the Falklands, what's it meant to you to be part of this? It's been a, a, a Tremendous privilege. It's been great to be here in, in the Falkland Islands. It's, it's a fantastic place. It's a fantastic place to work. You mentioned uh, a beach opening on Saturday. So what is happening to mark this huge milestone for the Falklands? Yeah, so on, on Saturday, around two o'clock, there'll be a demolition of around 20 anti-vehicle mines. Once, and, and someone has won... The, 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 the raffle to set that uh, demolition off. I understand it's a, it's a four-year-old, actually, so it would probably be their, their mother or father pressing the button. Another person's won the raffle to cut the barbed wire fence. The beach will be open for the public for the first time in, in 38 years. John Hare talking to us from the Falklands. Right, let's get right to the here and now. The armed forces and the NHS are on standby to roll out a COVID-19 vaccine across the UK from the start of December if all the final scientific hurdles are cleared. The Minister for the Armed Forces, James Heapy, told BFBS the planning for this is underway. We clearly will be a partner in that. We have a lot to offer to that solution and we are chomping at the bit 
to do whatever is required of us because this is the moment that the nation has been looking forward to and as soon as that vaccine is available we want to make sure that we're helping people to get it out as quickly as possible. And speaking on Armistice Day he paid this tribute. The extraordinary versatility of our armed forces to do anything from delivering vaccines through to fighting off our adversaries on the battlefield. That unlimited liability brings with it potentially the requirement to give their lives in the course of their duty. And that is an awe-inspiring thing about the men and women who have signed up to do that in the service of our nation. Uh, Christopher, the, the context of 2020 has, has made it an historic week of remembrance in lockdown, hasn't it? It certainly has. I think the most spectacular uh, um, feature of it is to see a few people going to the cenotaph to make their contribution, lay their own wreaths, uh, lay them on behalf of organisations that they represent. It is not the crowd occasion that you normally look for every year. Yet there is the Queen on the balcony, looking very solemn-faced. Um, there are the wreaths the next morning, and every day, times this morning, for example, um, we've got a soldier with a red cap on, uh, saluting what he's just left there. And suddenly, from there being just one wreath, the whole place is covered with wreaths. Christopher, thank you so much. That is it from us this week. Thank you to all our guests as well. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, you can, of course, subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode in future. That's at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.